millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Tiffany Lamb, and you're listening to the Real Suckers podcast. Today we're talking to Tiffany Lam about Bogota, Deliveroo, and LTNs. Tiffany is our first three-peat guest. That's right, she's that good. We'll link to the other two recordings in the show notes, and then you can observe the progress and decline of our recording equipment. Hi, I'm your Captain Alex, and I don't look after social media marketing events at Look Bum No Hands anymore. I am a freelance content creator and cyclist, and I am joined by my stoker. Jenny's still here, stoking in the rear. I am the director of the London Bike Kitchen, the author of How to Build a Bike, and now the chair of the Women of Colour Cycling Collective. Welcome, welcome, friends. Yeah. And we have a guest with us today. Hello, Hi. Tiffany. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Congratulations, Tiffany. You're our first three Yeah, you're our first three P. Awesome. <laughs> yes. We asked you the wiki question last time. So the question is, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? <laughs> I am a feminist urban researcher with expertise in inclusive cycling. I am currently working as a consultant at the New Economics Foundation Think Tank, where I work on a broad range of projects around the Green New Deal and Just Transition, uh, health inequalities, and inclusive local economies. And... I do what I do because I think there's a real need for progressive visions, ideas, and actions. Love to hear it. I agree. Sounds yeah. so good. We love to hear it. Yes. <laughs> so, happy COVID-19. <laughs> Is that our um, new greeting? <laughs> yeah, yay. Um, uh, do you have any pandemic coping strategies that you can share with us? Because we need more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I've been taking it one day at a time. I've been making sure to get out on my bike every day, which is a good coping strategy. Definitely. Every day. That's good. I I don't actually think yeah, I've I don't. yet this year. I've stopped. I mean, I'm... I just feel like this itch. You like have to go and go for a ride. Nice. That's good. Yeah, because I was going to ask, has COVID affected your cycling? I think because for me and Jenny, yes. Yeah. But for you, no. <laughs> or have you cycled more? Like, I don't know if it's a more or less thing, but I think before I used to be more of like a utilitarian cyclist. So I would 
cycle commute to places and not mm -hmm. just go out aimlessly on a ride. But obviously, since the pandemic, without places to really go to, I have been going out on aimless rides and just cycling for cycling's sake. And it's been great to see so many more people cycling, especially when it's sunny and warmer like today. Uh, but I've also noticed a lot more aggressive driving and yes. um, mm. yeah, just um, anger and hostility that seems yeah. displaced. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that as well. I think that's why I've started turbo training indoors. <laughs> yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what put me off. Yeah, they're so they go around the corners here so fast. Oh God, it's, it stresses me yeah. out. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, need that right it now. is stressful. Mm. You know, water off a duck's back. Just let it go. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's the spirit. So let's dive right in like a duck. Uh, your work focuses <laughs> on an intersectional view of gender and cycling. For the kids in the back, can you elaborate on what this is? Sure. So legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw coined intersectionality back in 1989 as a framework to observe, analyze, and ultimately dismantle unequal power relations in society. And her argument was that legal frameworks to address discrimination at that time were highly flawed because they only enabled a single issue analysis. So like she was looking at uh, black women bringing lawsuits against their employers and only able to claim racism or sexism, not that they were experiencing both in the workplace. Mm. So uh, Kimberly Crenshaw coined intersectionality to acknowledge the ways in which multiple forms of discrimination can happen at the same time and um, have different impacts on different groups of people. So you can't really consider like racism or sexism in isolation without looking at the bigger picture of just broader power dynamics and the ways that structural inequalities interact with each other and create different um, experiences of the world, including cycling, uh, the workplace, and um, yeah, just our day-to-day -day lives. I think we're better off for that, for sure. We need mm -hmm. it. But it's not common, is it? No, and I feel like lately intersectionality has kind of been at the heart of some culture wars <laughs> that try and suggest that it's about like an oppression Olympics or just um, tribalism. But if you go back to what Kimberly Crenshaw wrote about intersectionality in like 1989 and the early 90s, she's talking about structural inequalities and how that impacts people, not how your identity inherently means you are A, B, C, and D, these kinds of things, or don't do these kinds of things. Mm. For the kid, the, some of the kids in the back like me are like, I think I get intersectionality. <laughs> intersectionality. <laughs> Why is it important for cities to understand, well, intersectionality, but gender and social inclusion when it comes to cycling? So I think lots of cities have been prioritizing uh, increased cycling over the past few years as a response to the climate emergency and also during the pandemic as a healthier way to travel. 
And some cities have quite ambitious targets, like they want X percent of people cycling by 2030 or 2040. Um, and it's really important to understand and address the gender gap and other inequalities in cycling in order to achieve those targets. And these are quite complex problems with structural and spatial dimensions. So thinking about structural inequalities in the labor market, like the gender pay gap, sexual harassment, uh, the underpromotion of women, the underrepresentation of women in leadership roles, all of that creates gender differences in access to economic resources. And this impacts how people can travel. For example, people on lower incomes are likelier to rely more heavily on walking, public transport, and even cycling. And also when you look at spatial inequalities in the provision of cycling infrastructure and even pavements, that means that some people do not have access to safe quality cycling and walking infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. And so it's important for cities to understand and address how these structural and spatial inequalities interact and create or exacerbate barriers to cycling in order to create more enabling conditions for a more diverse range of people to cycle. Yeah. I think we talked about in the previous episode with you um, about like soft and hard infrastructure and, and we'll get into this later, but the technocratic view of, of infrastructure and how it's it's very one dimensional and does it's not intersectional. It's like the opposite, mm-hmm. and it just wish more like um, infrastructure planners had this background because I feel like it would make a huge change to how we get around a city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and considerations of gender and social inclusion can help planners, engineers, all that develop targeted interventions, including a combination of investments in physical cycling infrastructure, uh, as well as wider improvements in the built environment, and also crucially social and cultural interventions to help normalize cycling and make more people feel like cycling is for people like me. Um, you So relating to all this, you did a study in Bogota, Colombia. It was a gender and cycling study last year. Um, the title of it is The Study of Gender and Cycling in Bogota Using the Ciclo Alameda de Medio Milenio as a Pilot. Did I say that right? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded better than I did. I did three years. <laughs> Tres años de español. And it says the purpose was to conduct an intersectional gender analysis of cycling infrastructure in Bogota using the Ciclo Alameda Medio Milenio as a pilot in order to promote more inclusive and equitable urban cycling. But first off, how did you conduct research during a pandemic? So all the research was done remotely, which meant we worked closely with city officials in Bogota and the C40 Cities Finance Facility to give us access to important data that we needed to analyze and people to interview. So it would not have been possible without those um, partnerships and communication. So you didn't get to go to Colombia? (laughs) 
sadly not in this uh, game. <laughs> I know, I know. It would have been amazing. Do you plan to go? Uh, I'd like to go back. I was there in the fall of 2019 for the 50-50 More Women on Bikes um, conference when the city launched their, I guess, public policy goal to achieve gender equity in cycling. And um, it was an awesome event and there was just a lot of momentum for more diversity and inclusion in cycling. Cool. We've got quite, it's quite a broad question. (laughs) But what were the main findings of your research? That is a broad question. One of the findings was that, or I guess the starting point was that only 25% of cycling journeys in Bogota are made by women. And this isn't dissimilar to the gender gap in cycling in London and Mm -hmm. other European and North American cities. So a key factor that contributes to this gender gap and other inequalities in cycling is what you mentioned briefly before, Jenny, the technocratic paradigm in urban and transport planning. So the way our urban built environments and transport systems are designed and planned um, tend to prioritize technical considerations like quantitative data, numbers, um, science, technology, engineering, and economics. This makes it really difficult to bring up any considerations around uh, gender, diversity, social inclusion, and power relations because they just seem irrelevant. And one example of how this technocratic paradigm affects transport planning is that transport systems have been designed to optimize peak hour journeys towards city centers or your quote-unquote traditional work commute. This is heavily skewed to men and working age adults. And in Bogota, work commutes account for just 28% of women's journeys and 41% of men's journeys. And compared to men, women in Bogota make more trips related to caring responsibilities and dropping off or picking someone up. This is consistent with findings from other global contexts where women typically make fewer work and work-related trips than men do. And women tend to make more journeys related to household and caring responsibilities. Also, women are less likely to be in full-time employment compared to men. So the role that cycling infrastructure can play in addressing the uh, gender gap in cycling is to facilitate a wider range of journeys, not just the typical commute to work. This includes care-related journeys uh, like safe routes to school, trying to promote active and independent mobility for older people, prioritizing essential workers' journeys, and enabling safe routes to hospitals, uh, doctor's office, do- doctor's offices, etc. And so part of what we did in this study was to look at the demographic, spatial, and socioeconomic characteristics of Bogota's 19 boroughs in order to identify different challenges and opportunities in each borough. So for example, Some parts of Bogota are quite hilly, which suggests that e-bikes could help make cycling more feasible. But taking into account the socioeconomic characteristics of that area, 
the cost or those areas, the cost of an e-bike could be a barrier to um, cycling, especially for people on lower incomes and older people. So one possible solution to make e-bikes more accessible could include a cycle hire scheme that includes e-bikes and potentially offers subsidies for residents with lower incomes. And then it mentioned the CAMM. Yeah, so the new Ciclalameda Media Millennium Cycle Lane um, is an oh, ambitious... Try saying that first. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say CAM. Cam. It's CAM. CAM. The yeah. CAM. So CAM Cycle Lane. <laughs> Bogota is building 25 kilometers of new cycling infrastructure. As CAM. we speak. Yes. Um, mm. And it will connect ah. the south and the north of the city. It's been referred to as Latin America's cycle superhighway. And construction should be completed within, I think, two or three years. And um, But because... that's taking language from the, like, London cycle superhighways. And that was an <laughs> issue, wasn't it? Like, the idea that, oh, it's speed and, like, you're going to get to work faster yeah, yeah, I think that <laughs> definitely has um, some negative connotations because as we discussed on a previous podcast, um, the emphasis on speed can be quite alienating. Yeah. People mm. who don't associate cycling with something athletic or uh, something that only super fit people can do. Yeah, but they're not like calling it that. No, I think it's kind of a PR thing mm. to just I mean in some ways it's a massive investment in cycling infrastructure and 25 kilometers is quite a lot um, and I think yeah just to continue building momentum and hyping it up uh, it's yeah just been referred to as Latin America's cycle superhighway it's just, just an observation the influence of um uh or how p policies circulate globally, like the idea of a cycle superhighway from London being held up internationally as this kind of good standard that other cities should aspire to, then that being transposed onto other contexts where maybe that kind of language or terminology isn't as resonant. Mm, it's interesting because we wanted to talk about the differences between london and bogota um i didn't keep the stat from last time because we've got your stat that you mentioned the 25 percent of bogota cyclists are female what was from the gender cycling gap yes it's very similar to uh london where women make just 26 percent of cycling trips and mm. both london and bogota are big cities with more cyclists in the urban centers and fewer in urban peripheries. Both cities are also investing more in cycling infrastructure and have ambitions to become more cycling friendly cities. I guess one unique thing about Bogota is that it established a public policy goal to achieve gender parity in cycling, this 50-50 more women on bikes goal. And it's one of the few or maybe the only city administration that has explicitly adopted a gender perspective on uh, cycling policy and projects. Why do you think mm. that is? Do they have more women in government? 
I think lately there, well, the current mayor is female and there are more mm. women uh, in this administration, especially working on uh, urban and transport planning issues. But also Bogota has a gender secretary or um, secretary for women. And it was really, I guess, it's been long-standing efforts to prioritize gender equality across all areas of life and just to address machismo and violence against women. And that's been extended to cycling, especially since Bogota considers itself a cycling city or even a cycling capital, and they want more people cycling. And that's part of why they quickly rolled out temporary cycling infrastructure at the start of the pandemic. And they've realized that in order to achieve their ambitious cycling targets, they just need more women cycling. Oh, that's good. They're on the right track. They do the um, Ciclovia. Mm. Is that the like one Sunday a month or every Sunday? Yeah, so every Sunday a month, um, they close down large parts of the city to car traffic and um yeah it's amazing people cycle run scoot they're out with their dogs cats families um and ciclovia started in bogota and that's been exported internationally as um, do it here. streets play streets things like that um and the idea was just to reclaim space from cars and give it to people to cycle have fun uh, exercise just get out and be safe from traffic i love that idea yeah we need that we i mean do, that. i'm wondering if you know like what has been the effect of that because they've been doing it for quite a while now right like yeah yeah it's quite a long-standing tradition and in some ways that's helped normalize cycling as just a thing that people can do. Um, I think one perhaps unintended consequence is that because it's only on Sundays, um, cycling can then be perceived by those who don't typically cycle or don't cycle commute as just a recreational or athletic thing and not like a day-to-day form of transport. And I think that's one of the challenges for Bogota to um, harness that energy and enthusiasm for cycling uh, recreationally on Sundays to day-to-day commutes and um, journeys. Well, challenge accepted. (laughs) We had some car-free days, I think. Yeah, and like the cabbies got all angry about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, and it needs to be consistent and repeatable, doesn't it? Yeah. Like normalized. It day. just needs to be like and this is what we do on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is tough, though. But how do you think COVID COVID has affected cycling in general? I think overall there has been a cycling boom in London and many other cities since COVID hit. Anecdotally, there have been more essential workers cycling to and from work. And I think there's also been higher demand for cycling locally, um, just because people are staying at home more. I think another way that COVID has affected cycling in London and other cities is that it's increased the presence of 
gig economy delivery cyclists because Uber Eats, Deliveroo, um, some of these other companies have had um, recruitment drives to get more people working for them. Yeah. And obviously, um, people who work on these platforms are engaged in very precarious work. And um, it's been, yeah, I've seen a lot more just a delivery Uber Eats cyclists. And I don't think there are any official stats, um, but anecdotally, just from the independent workers of Great Britain, the IWGB union that represents gig economy delivery cyclists and other independent workers, uh, there has been increased exploitation by platforms as well as the restaurants that people work or deliver food for. Mm, yeah, I remember I saw on your Twitter posted two articles, The Rise of Uber Eats gang masters is tearing the gig economy apart i'll put a link below and the forgotten frontline um along with healthcare staff workers in industries like retail and delivery are facing huge pressure and dangerous conditions yeah. for almost a year yeah it's not really going away is it that's always been a bit of an issue but i feel like that's probably amplified yeah more they're since not COVID. been allowed to unionize or like there's union busting efforts I guess for us, we know, Jenny, the strain on, like, bike workshops <laughs> and bike production. It's the opposite. <laughs> and parts. It's just, the, yeah, there's, like, part shortages. <laughs> um, and just people digging out old bikes, so that's good. And people um, wanting to take up cycling again. I think that's been a positive effect. But negatively, it's been mm. um, a lot of aggressive behaviour we've dealt with um i understand you know everyone's still we've been on edge for the past year it's like a year now you know yeah uh, a year it is and, yeah it's officially a year now and um but at the same time it's like it doesn't mean that you treat people like they are there to serve you yeah but anyway i completely agree in the point of um Deliveroo and Uber Eats and Just Eat cyclists having to really pick up this demand and not receive mm. any sort of compensation for that. And in fact, often being mm. um, docked pay, um, it's just, it's that whole essential workers argument of like, how can you be considered an essential worker but then also not be paid a living wage yeah and be denied basic things like bathroom breaks yeah i know the local governments in london and actually i think in the whole of the uk a lot of cities started installing ltns so the low traffic neighborhoods and there's been very vocal pushback um but it seems like done by a very small group and I was wondering how you viewed LTNs and how we can I mean I, my personal opinion I think they're great I think there are some issues but I'm wondering what you think yeah so I think LTNs are an effective way to support active travel and just reimagine public space 
insofar as they are low cost and quite easy and quick to implement, I think they need to be part of broader long-term investments in active travel so that they can improve connectivity to other cycle lanes and walking paths and um, help create a more joined up and cohesive network. I think one of the criticisms of LTNs was because of their rapid implementation, there wasn't really any um, consultation or meaningful engagement with people beforehand. So I think going forwards, um, more of that community engagement work has to be built in prior to the design and implementation of LTNs, especially as LTNs can be so beneficial for those with less access to parks and green space. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. I I remember um, Hackney Council was consulting on the LTN route on, oh, I can't remember the street name. Um, it's on CS1 <laughs> and I write it like every day mm. and it it's very close to school and they had been trying to introduce um, bollards to prevent rat runs uh for i think a couple a couple years ago and there was like protest from the school from the parents who thought that then it would mean that there would be more traffic on the a10 which is the main road next one street over mm-hmm. and the parents were thinking well if you're going to start funneling traffic onto the main road that is also one side where the school is so it's going to cause more traffic, which means more pollution. And they were anti-LTN. They were anti-shutting down or, you know, putting in like a little filter onto that road. And I just thought it, there was all this back and forth on Twitter. And I was just like, we're on the same team. Like, can't we at least discuss that from this point? Like, we want the same thing. We want less pollution. We ne- And like you said, Tiffany, like there needs to be a kind of more holistic approach at looking at the bigger picture and understanding like there's going to be some difficulties. But I think generally, once roads get uh, you put in filters, people just accept them the, the mm. for the most part. And then there's definitely been vandalism um, this past year mm. of the new LTNs. But yeah, quite a bit of that. Yeah, prior to that, though, I think people just you they get angry for like a month and then they they're fine with it. Like you don't miss it. Yeah, I think if you give people an opportunity to complain, I think they can complain without seeing the bigger picture. But it's like, that sounds really frustrating. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> tough. Yeah. How do we get more underrepresented groups into the cycling industry? So what I thought we could do was using your study. What I found really interesting about it was at the end, it had recommendations for uh, 15 in total with three different headings. And I liked to see it as a pick a mix of what (laughs) you could do. So I thought we could maybe use these plans of actions and recommendations taken from the study and maybe just discuss if you could apply them to getting more underrepresented groups into cycling. 
Yeah, so um, there were 15 recommendations from the report that were grouped into three categories. The first one, uh, governance and planning. The second one, physical infrastructure and urban environments. And the third one, social infrastructure. So in terms of the cycling industry, um, I'll start with social infrastructure since Mentoring programs and peer support networks are so important to get more underrepresented groups into the industry and um, just cycling in general, especially because the mm. idea that people like me don't cycle is a barrier to cycling for people of color, particularly women of color. So it's really important to have role models and a support network to help normalize cycling and make it seem like something that is an easy everyday Thing to do. I'm so glad to hear that because I'm like, oh, that's what I'm doing with the <laughs> the mm. Women of Color Cycling yeah, Collective. Exactly. Like, we've got a huge um like a social group online and it's so like everyone's really positive and just super supportive. So I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think like I remember Emily Chapel talked about it before, like a mentorship scheme for people within like cycling industry. Oh, and like supporting people on the way up. I think that would be really cool. I've seen that in the video game industry mm. for women, but I haven't spotted it yet in cycling. I know the person who set one up for video games, Anissa, and I do know she's very stressed from doing it, but I guess that's a byproduct of setting something up in your own time, right? So it's like kind of hoping someone at some point, like what you're doing, Jenny, you know, it's almost kind of volunteer your time for yeah. something that's bigger than ourselves. It's not always easy to expect someone to do that. Sounds like she needs a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's one of the mentors I know. as well. <laughs> that's the thing. People forget that, you know, if you're, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> yeah. I need is. help. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great to talk to other people, like, especially on the same level as you. So that you can talk about the same problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then support somebody else who's like worried about things that you've dealt with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So matching people up is also a bigger issue with a mentorship scheme. Like I think mentorship schemes are great, but the amount of work that goes into doing it well, of allocating the correct amount of time and allocating the correct type of mentees to mentors. And so. also sustaining them so that it's not just like a three or a six month thing, but something that can last yeah. a bit longer mm. well yeah not even just one session yeah. right yeah oh i spoke to them once yeah yeah it's kind of regularly checking in oh, it's work mm. <laughs> it is work <laughs> this show is brought to you by our third wheels want to support jenny and alex become a third wheel supporter and help us make episodes in 2021 Give us a saddle push with a one-off donation or become a £3 a month stabilizer or a £5 a month third wheel. Visit wheelsuckerspodcast.com for details. We have retreated to the comfort of our homes to digitally record the Wheelsuckers podcast for you, dear listener, which is now edited by Wardour Studios. Wardour have remained strong, providing professional recordings and editing in these unusual times. Let their team of engineers, producers and composers be your guide. Visit wardourstudios.co.uk for more. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In terms of other recommendations to get more underrepresented groups in cycling, so one of the recommendations under the governance and planning heading was to do more outreach and engagement with those for whom cycling is a need because of um, economic necessity or spatial isolation. Um, So just considering the cycling experiences of delivery cyclists who work for uh, gig economy yeah. platforms, for example, because they have contributed to increased cycling in cities overall, especially since the pandemic, but they may not necessarily think of themselves as a cyclist. They may not be mm-hmm. engaged in any kind of cycling activism or Hanging and um, policymakers and planners may not even think of them as cyclists and may not even bother to consult them or just try and mm. see what their needs may be. So it's really important uh, that uh, cycling plans and infrastructure are designed for not just those who cycle because they want to, it's like a lifestyle choice for them, but for people who may not really like cycling, may not consider themselves cyclists, but have to do it for work or because they don't live near any public transport stations and don't have a car. It's so important to talk to those people. I think that about all the, yeah, food delivery cyclists. They're the ones using it the most at unusual times Mm -hmm. and probably just like snaking and carving out their own routes that if a planner could make the time to talk to them. I think it could be so interesting. Mm -hmm. And finally, in terms of recommendations from the physical infrastructure and urban environments dimension, one interesting idea that's been gaining traction 
in Bogota and will be incorporated in the Ciclo Alameda Media Millennio is a cycling infrastructure with integrated services. And what this means is that uh, we, when we plan cycling infrastructure, we shouldn't only be thinking about trying to facilitate movement uh, like cycle lanes, uh, superhighways, all that, but that we also need to consider infrastructure and aspects of the built environment that will enable people to stop, sit, and rest along their journey. Oh, this is when you talked about um, water fountains. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What, and just like benches? Yeah, benches, (laughs) water fountains, air pumps. um, Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, you need that because I've done it. I'm sure we all have where you've helped out a friend that doesn't cycle as much. And because they don't cycle as much, they do need to take breaks. Yeah. Just generally. And then I, you know, me ugh, not thinking properly. You're like, oh, really? Oh, do we have to? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and you think, oh, yeah, no, because you're not used to it. And like, that would be so, that would be a really clever to integrate that into the cycle routes because it would make it easier for people to want yeah. to use and engage with. Yeah, and it also helps to create more inclusive public spaces for like older people, uh, people making encumbered journeys where they're traveling with other people or things, um, and also people with disabilities. And it's also important to integrate cycling infrastructure into the built environment more and not just think of it as like a speedy transport lane or something, but just part of the urban fabric. Perceptions of safety are really important and influence cycling for women, especially uh, because there have been studies showing that women are more deterred by abandoned or derelict public spaces because it increases their sense of danger or potential danger. And if you have a more holistic design um just cycling infrastructure and integrated services then it makes it more just kind of like public space uh somewhere that's safe to be whether you're in motion or still that's such a good point there's like a pathway yeah near me that you know you're like just don't go that way (laughs) (laughs) when it doesn't feel safe Mm. i also think that especially cycling during lockdown I really wish we had cycling infrastructure with integrated services just because if I'm going to go out for a ride and want to be out for a bit longer on a nice day, there's nowhere you can go. It's not like you can just stop into a cafe or a pub and sit down. Uh, So it'd be great if there were just more benches or water fountains so that you could stop and rest and hydrate and then get on with it rather Mm. than just cycling around and not really having a place to stop yeah yeah i had that the other day like me and matt just went for a walk and uh, just the placing of the benches in leightonstone are hilarious weird (laughs) they tend tend to be at the crossroad of a really busy road (laughs) facing into the road so it's like okay do i really want to sit here where all the cars are constantly coming there's like a really beautiful church in leightonstone and the benches from that are facing away from the church (laughs) again looking at the road you know and you're like who thought of what happens when i sit here like it's just not comfortable (laughs) they're not places you want to sit and relax and take in the space around you yeah it's just 
Also, uh, more foot-powered things. Like, people talk about, like, oh, you can't touch stuff, but it's like, if you had foot-powered water fountains, then that means that no one's going to spread COVID when you get water. And I always, the thing I always get frustrated about as well is that a lot of cycle routes are tailored towards just traditional bikes. Mm -hmm. Like, the bikes we've seen from Wheels for Wellbeing and cargo bikes. Like, when you make a very, like, rigid dipped or like um bordered bike lane it means someone who hasn't got like a larger bike can use it you know and the lane is just like a tiny lane like some of the lanes on cs2 are so narrow it's even actually hard to overtake another cyclist like they're actually perfect for one Mm. cyclist and when you've got two one coming towards you and one coming the other way there's like no space I'm really that really frustrates me. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because this was actually something that's been um, incorporated in the design process of the CAM in Bogota. The idea that if we want cycling to be more inclusive, then that has to be reflected in the infrastructure. So it's not just cycling infrastructure with integrated services, but it's the very width of cycle lanes to not only enable people to ride to abreast, especially for uh, someone cycling with a child or an older person or a new cyclist, but also for cargo bikes and people with disabilities who cycle on different on different bikes, um, on different cycles, and just having that space to enable people to cycle. Yeah, because the, th- the thing that's just like in my brain I can picture is the amount of times I've been on a cycle lane and then some like lycra-clad speed demon is in the road because they can't get past on the cycle lane. Yeah. And I always think you've, 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 it's, it's, there's something wrong here when that's happening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when cyclists are still vouch like wanting to use the road because the lane doesn't accommodate all the cyclists and I think that's defeated the point of the cycle lane. But also it might be there. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get drivers are mad. They're like, use the cycle lane. Yeah. And then, yeah, they're shouting at them for not using the lane. And it's like, oh, the, the beautiful hate cycle yeah. continues. And also drivers park in cycle lanes. Yeah. Or just um, stop there to like oh, yeah. get out and do something. And it's like, you're blocking my way. Or on the pavement, sidewalk in America. But they'll just block mm. any area just so they can park yeah yeah it's interesting like around old street i mean i haven't been there around there for a while now but they put those kind of bollards in that for a cyclist are great because they kind of protect you from the car but what actually ended up happening was the cars just kept going into them and so they they were bending into the cycle <laughs> oh, lane no. so they were like a long tall bollard that has then been bent into the cycle lane and then it just gives you a red flag of where you th- you know a car or a bus isn't going to really adhere to where yeah. the lane is. And it's like, oh! <laughs> it's like they become targets. They should be the opposite. They shouldn't be bendy. They should be rigid. And so people won't drive into yeah. them. So a lot of them then eventually were popping off so they weren't there anymore. Oh, <laughs> so, so it's really tricky where it's like how you build the protection in the lane like it's really tough (sighs) why don't we talk about fun stuff then yeah i was (laughs) like fun stuff fun stuff (laughs) um tell us about your cat i 
love my cat. Uh, she is a four-year-old tuxedo cat named Millie, and she's just been an absolute dream, like just the best cat to have around during lockdown, and in general, but obviously we've been spending more time together since lockdown, and um, it's just a great comfort to look over and see her like looking out the window or curled up in a ball or just scratching or walking around um and yeah she's delightful I, I remember seeing someone's tweet about how quote when things get back to quote unquote normal um that they're gonna have like separation anxiety with their pet <laughs> oh i'm feeling that yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think that's going to happen to a lot of people. Could you take, and could you take Millie to work with you? I'd love to. You know, I bought a um, backpack, a pet backpack. <gasps> cycle her in. Does it have, like, <laughs> the little <sighs> um, globe clear window? Yeah, like a space bubble for astronauts. <laughs> yes, I love those. They're mm-hmm. so cool. Does she we've go in it, though? cycling once. Uh, well, we've been out on walks twice, and she'll have to be like quickly put into it before she can think or escape or do anything <laughs> she's in it she's quite still and quiet so i don't think she like really minds it that much she hasn't sat upright in it to look out the globey bit she'll kind of lay low and just be super curled up and still um but yeah it's it's all right oh i want one yeah. for me <laughs> Have you taken her cycling? Just once. Uh, we went to the shop to get hummus and back. And <laughs> it was like a 10-minute ride or so. And um, yeah, I don't think I've ever cycled more cautiously in my life. Because I was like, oh, I have to avoid every single pothole and bump. And just really make sure that cars don't do anything stupid to throw me or her off. Um, and yeah, it was a good ride. It was quite adventurous, I think. I was just mainly worried about how she must be feeling in the backpack. <laughs> Interesting. I've got to recommend there's a YouTube channel I watch called Jun's Kitchen. Oh, with the two cats! Or three! Yeah, and they've they're three cats, but they've trained one of them to sit in a, the front basket of the bike when they go cycling. Amazing! Love Have you it. seen that? It's And it's a gorgeous, long-haired, ginger and white cat. Like, it's such a beautiful cat. And it just is like chilling in the basket just the wind going through its hair (laughs) they've trained it so well that when they stop it will jump out walk around and then get back in (gasps) when they and then they'll go to the shops jun will go to the shops to buy stuff to cook it's mainly a cooking channel (laughs) and the cat will just sit in the basket and wait you know and you're like this isn't real this isn't real love it (laughs) it's amazing and he makes such amazing food for the cats yeah, the show's mainly cooking for the cats. For me, cat food. Lucky cats. Yeah. Yes, it is. Incredibly... It's the next step, Tiffany. It's the next step. Incredibly labour-intensive cat food. <laughs> yeah, that's why it exists on yeah. YouTube, because you wouldn't do it otherwise. <laughs> uh, so, talk about social media and stuff we like. We always like to ask people to recommend us three accounts that you enjoy and they do not have to be related to cycling. I just always like getting new show recommendations or podcasts to listen to. 
Yeah, so none of these are bike-related. Yes. Uh, in terms of social media. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> in terms of social media accounts, um, two people I recommend following are Stephanie Kelton, who is an American economist who's advised Bernie Sanders 2016 and show campaigns. She's the author of The Deficit Myth, um, which I think is really relevant because this week is budget week in the UK and a lot of her work kind of debunked the austerity ideology and the that uh, the government spent so much money like we have to pay it back so yeah highly recommend following her uh, social media and also Kate Rayworth who is the author of Donut Economics uh, which has been quite trendy lately in terms of new economic thinking that uh, can get us to a more socially just and environmentally sustainable future. And a podcast recommendation, The Reductress Minute, which is the podcast of The Reductress, which is a satirical women's magazine. So they basically uh, satirize like Cosmo, L, uh, all of those women's mags, and um, it's yeah, really funny and refreshing. I'm writing it down now. Amazing, sounds right up my alley. I yeah, remember, but, I remember um, discovering when I discovered or came to the realization that every issue of Cosmo was exactly the same as the previous yeah. one, and I was like, mm-hmm. I am. Why am I buying this? Mm. <laughs> oh yeah, I was going to say that um, the reductress recently had a headline that was like. Cat does absolutely nothing, but it's absolutely everything. It's like the story of my life. <laughs> Amazing. I want a cat. Get one. I, I, you used to have one, didn't our, you? Our flatmate your housemate. had a cat. And yeah. then, um, so we've been looking at like fostering or even like local shelters, but they're so oversubscribed. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, especially with COVID. Yeah. Can't get a cat. You can't get yeah. a cat in COVID. So if any anyone out there has a cat or a kitten, <laughs> we prefer a black one. Jenny. I want a black Jenny. cat. Just really partial to black cats. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tiffany's got some zines out there. Yes. About the gender gap. Are there three now? Uh there are two. Two. Two volumes. Two. Yes. So yeah, I'll put a link below if you want to buy those. They're still available to buy, aren't they? Yeah, from Microcosm Publishing. Yes. Yes, we have them. They're good. Cool. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you, Tiffany. Tiffany. Yeah, thank you. This was a blast. I love our yearly (laughs) check-ins. I think we should do one every year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good traditions. (laughs) Support us by becoming a third wheel. You'll be in good company. Aurelia Venschlovite, Karina Fussell, Kirsty Chestnut, Kate Thompson, Sally Bremner, Jonathan Rothwell, Ella Green, Annie McCarthy, Max Meyer, Bence Bala, Luke Rocher, and Jenny Raphael. And a shout out to Stuart Dean for giving us a one-off saddle push. If you like what we do, squish that like button rate us on itunes and subscribe Subscribe. if you can't give us your money give Give us us your stars stars. (laughs) 
and shh, don't keep us a secret. Slam that share Share. button and tell all your podcast listening and perhaps also cycling friends about our show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 